I'm going to talk to you tonight about seeking his face. Seeking his face. And the majority of our time tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 24. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there and maybe put a finger, your other finger in Exodus 33, we'll be there too. I'll sprinkle in a little salt and pepper, other scriptures too. But uh, that's mainly where we're going to be. And the Lord gave me a pretty significant revelation on what it means to seek his face this spring and it was really powerful and I can't wait to share that with you tonight um, as we make that a main priority in our lives and in our hearts and in our church really too we want to be a church of face seekers that's my goal that's my hope I want to be a face seeker of God and uh, hopefully that will make sense by the time we get done tonight. And we'll have an, we are going to have a little more worship at the end, which we don't normally do. But we're going to have the band come up at the end and have a little more worship time to just put it into practice and spend some time seeking his face. Um, so how many of you have ever known anyone that's done online dating? All right. How many of you have heard some good results from that? Oh, Good. How many of you have heard some utter horror stories? Oh, wow, both. All right, we've heard both. We've known both. I've I've known a couple that have went okay, and I've actually known quite a few that have went good. Um, you got to be careful though with online dating because if you don't meet them face to face, you know there can be some deception going on. Especially this thing in our culture, what's become known as catfishing. Have you guys ever heard of catfishing? Uh, it's when someone like you're dating online and they use a profile picture that is not who they really are. Usually someone much more attractive and younger and maybe more in shape. And uh, they pretend to be that person and then they build a relationship, usually for some ulterior motive that's not good. Uh, One such example happened to this young lady from Great Britain. True story. Her name's Emma Perrier, like the seltzer water. And this is her Nice young lady, I'm sure. And she got involved in a a dating website with this guy who called himself Ronnie. And you can tell by the fact that I'm using the finger quotes where this is going. But this was Ronnie's profile picture. (laughs) Smoking dude, right? And so she gets to know Ronnie. And over the course of, I don't know, probably six months or so, they build a relationship. And they start not only... uh, emailing and messaging back and forth but they they start doing phone calls and she gets really she's like falling in love with this guy she gets emotionally tight well of course if you're falling in love with someone and you've only known them through through text messages or emails you want to meet them face to face right and so she started asking him hey could we could we do a video call sometime could we maybe meet in person at a coffee shop Um, and she noticed over a period of several months that Ronnie always had an excuse of why he wasn't going to do a video call or why he wasn't uh, going to meet her in person. And she started to get very suspicious. Now, what Ronnie did not know is that Emma had access to this uh, search engine that's called a reverse image search. And so she used the image. Can you put the image up of the good-looking dude? She put this image in his profile picture into 
this reverse image search, and she found the, the real identity of this guy. And wouldn't you know it, church, his name was not Ronnie. He was actually not from Great Britain. He was from the country of Turkey. And he's a male model. And his name is Adam Guzel. So that's who this guy really is. And, and when she found this out, uh, she talked to Ronnie again on the phone. And she confronted him and said, you know, I did the search and I found out this is not, this guy's name's Adam Guzel. Like, who are you? Finally, Ronnie confessed to being this guy. And this is 55-year-old Alan Stanley from the UK. And it turns out he was doing this to five other women as well um, because he was lonely and thought they wouldn't really like him if they met in person. Poor Alan doesn't give you an excuse to deceive people, right? And so Emma was absolutely devastated because she, whom she thought she was interacting with was not the actual person. And so my, my advice to anyone that's doing online dating is at some point you had better seek their face like their real face face to face especially in our culture now with deep fakes and photo photoshop and all the ai magic you can do you had better learn to seek their face i knew of another story uh that went quite well, actually. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a good news online dating story for those of you that might be perusing into those waters. Uh, many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, my mom wanted to make me the middleman to try to set up my cousin on date. And uh, she said, you know, that, you know, Becky, I work with her daughter is single. And you know, your cousin Josh is single. And uh, I think maybe we should work some magic here. Maybe, maybe you could talk to Josh. And I just went, mom, I'm going to stop you right there. I don't do this, and I'm not getting involved, so no, I don't care who this is, I'm not getting involved. She's like, well, maybe you could just give him her email, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. So my mom took it upon herself to give my cousin this young lady's email, and they began emailing each other back and forth, and over the period of, I think it was about six months, they got to know each other, um, and they really, really, really liked each other. They were having these long conversations, and finally, he told me, he's like, man, I got to meet her. I got to meet her. And, uh, and so I'm going to ask her to go on a date. I was like, awesome. And so it was a little while later, he said, I, I, I asked her to go on a date. He said, our very first date, we're going to go to a Cincinnati Reds ball game. And I said, man, you just made a big mistake. And he was like, why is that? I was like, you're talking about a three-hour event that in person is very slow and boring. And if you don't like this person, like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to be excusing yourself to get nachos every 10 minutes like like you should have picked something that was a lot shorter you know and if it doesn't go well you can just quietly like oh, okay well time to go home and he was like oh I didn't think about that <laughs> so I put some fear of God in him you know I'm, I'm that friend I'm that encourager you know but all the fear I was putting in him it didn't matter they met at a, a coffee shop before the game and they hit it off and, of course, they, they just loved each other. And they, they loved their time together so much that um, they were really late to the game because they just stayed at the coffee shop talking uh, for so long. And I think it was about six to eight months later, uh, they ended up getting married. And still married to this day, have, I think, four beautiful children, just beautiful family. And so it really worked out for them. And it can work out. But I find it interesting People who do online dating, at some point, even if they're falling in love through 
text messages, messages through text. At some point, they want to meet face to face because through messages, through conversation, uh, you can get to know a lot about someone. You, you can get to know a lot about their nature, about their personality, what they're like, what their likes and dislikes are. But when you meet in person, face to face, you get to know their presence. And that right there is different. How many of you know that is different? So God Almighty has been revealing himself throughout history to mankind. And many of those interactions have been face to face. And then he had those people write these things down. And that library of books and interactions has become known as our Bible. And someone once said the Bible is the only book that when you read it, the author is present. It was a book that was written or assembled to help to introduce us to a person. The Bible was never an end in and of itself. There are scriptures all throughout the Bible where the very real Lord God, who is a very real person, a very real spirit, is practically begging us to get to know him for ourselves in a very real, experiential way. And so in Psalm uh, chapter 24, the psalmist is writing about who is able to do that. What kind of person could draw near to God and get to know him? And this is the question he asks in the middle of the psalm. And so I want to read the first few verses, and I want to talk about this as we talk about seeking God's face. It says this in Psalm 24, 1 through 6, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And he asked this question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He's describing something that in ancient Israel in that in verse three, that was very would have been very well known to those uh, in ancient Israel at that time. Uh, Starting around Psalm 20, it's the Psalms of Ascent. And these were the songs that, you know, three times a year they were supposed to go up to the temple to worship if they lived very far away. If you live closer, you might go up every week. But if you live far away, three times a year you're supposed to go up. And it could be a several-day journey. I mean, imagine three times a year you're driving to Florida to go worship God. Or three times a year you're driving to California if you live. It's a three-day journey for some of them to, to worship God. And they would start with, I think it's Psalm 20, the first Psalm of Ascent. And there's several Psalms of Ascent. And they would sing one per day as they're on their journey. And as they're drawing nearer and nearer to the place where God was dwelling at that time, where his presence would dwell. And he says, who may dwell on the mountain of God? Who may ascend the holy hill, right? That's the temple mount. Jerusalem is on a hill. The temple itself is on a hill. Even to this day, it's the same spot where it was back then, approximately, right? And so they would go up this hill. He's saying, who can ascend the hill? But then he says this, who may stand in the holy place? Now that's different. He's saying, this is the revelation God gave me. There are degrees of presence. There are degrees of presence. 
He's talking about who may ascend the hill and get close to God and get in the vicinity of the temple. But not just that, who may go all the way in and stand in what I would call God's bedroom. So the temple had three main parts, the outer courtyard, and then in the building itself, it had the holy place. And then behind the veil, the curtain, it had the most holy place. In that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant at this time. The Ark of the Covenant had two, it was not, it was a small little box, right? That had, you know, the Ten Commandments, the manna and all that. Uh, and, and I think Aaron's staff that butted or something like that in there. And, and on the top of the cover, it had the, a couple angels as a decorative piece. And between their wings that were facing inward towards each other, God told Moses, between the wings of the cherubim angel on top of the atonement cover, that is where my literal manifest presence of God Almighty who created the universe is going to dwell among people. He told him in that in Exodus 25 verse 22. And so the psalmist is asking, who, who may not just get close to the temple, get in the vicinity? He's saying, I want to know who can stand in the very presence of God face to face. Who can go into the most holy place? Now that's interesting because at this time, only one person was allowed by law. And that was the high priest who could only enter into that place once a year. And once a year, only with the blood of a pure spotless lamb. On the most holy day, the day of atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And he, it was very strict what he was allowed to do when he went in there. And he would, he would sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the atonement cover to make atonement. And they would come back out. And the priests would have little bells on the tassels of their robes. And according to the Jewish rabbinical legend, they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle when he went into the most holy place to apply the blood so that if he was irreverent or if he messed up in any way and God killed him and he died in the presence of God because he offended the holy presence of God, they could drag his dead body out. And they would hear that the bells stopped ringing and be like, uh-oh, John is, the bells aren't ringing. John's bells aren't ringing. And sorry, John, I'm using your name. <laughs> but I mean like John Doe, you know what I'm saying. Okay, and so... <laughs> it's not prophetic in any way. And so, <laughs> got to be careful in a prophetic church. I always pick a name and I always get in trouble. Melchizedek messed up this time. <laughs> not going to go on with that one. And he, he went in and, and his bells aren't ringing. Uh-oh. And they maybe peek under the curtain a little bit, you know, the real bold ones. And uh-oh, we need to pull them out, right? Now, we don't know that that ever actually had to happen. But according to the Jewish legend, that's what they did. Because this is pre-Jesus. And so if you're going to enter into the most holy place face-to-face -face with God, you better have reverence and you better do it according to the way he wants to be worshipped. I've said many times, we don't get to define God. We only get to discover him. And we discover him for who he is. Anybody ever have God tell you to do something and you're just like, what in the world? Who are you? <laughs> what kind of person? Yeah. What kind of God? <laughs> you know, one of those eight, uh, Genesis 22 moments? Again, not literally. That was only once in history. Okay, all right. So the psalmist asked this question. Who can, who can draw near to God? That's the question he's asking. And he goes down this list of qualities. 
And it's interesting because after this, this list of qualities kind of parallels with another list in um, Psalm 15. The psalmist in Psalm 15 asks the same question. And then he's got a whole list. So Psalm 24, 4 and 5, it says, this is who may enter into that most holy place, the very presence of God. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Now in Psalm 15, there's another parallel list. Same question is asked, and it says the one whose walk is blameless, who, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. That's Psalm 15. Now back to Psalm 24. The ones with clean hands and a pure heart doesn't trust in an idol. Now remember in modern America, we don't worship little statues, do we? But scriptures say greed is idolatry. Uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. Maybe there's some idolatry that we need to be aware of. These will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. This is the... This is who may enter into that holy, the most holy place, God's very presence. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who don't have idolatry, they're making God their number one. And the scripture says that this is the, such is the generation of those who seek him. God's not just looking for a person to be like this. He's not just looking for a church family to be faith seekers. He's looking for a generation. A generation. But how many of you know, we're not going to see a generation if, if me and my own family aren't seeking his face. And we're not going to see a generation if my family's doing it, but our, our whole church, if we can't even get one whole church family to do it. Do you understand what I'm saying? This, I believe, is what the Lord is longing for. These are the type of worshipers the Father desires. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. Did you know God is looking for lovers? He's not just looking for servants or workers. He's looking for lovers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a family business, the kingdom business. So he wants to work with his family. He wants to work with his spouse. He wants to work with his bride. But God is love. And so he's like, I will not let our relationship get to the point to where we're just ships passing in the night and you're working for me. So if we start to get a little too Martha-ish, he goes, hold up, time to sit back down at the feet. If it gets a little too, we're just managing God's kids' schedules. <laughs> Who's picking up from practice? <laughs> he goes, hold up. 
time for a date night. Just me and you. Come away with me. To, let's get away to a quiet place where you can rest. That's his heart. He's looking for lovers. The scriptures were never written just so we could know about God. They were written to introduce us to who he is. And so time and again throughout the scriptures, in the pages of this book, you see God inviting us. He says it this way, seek my face. Seek the face of God. Now that's not language that we use a lot, which is why I use that stupid online dating illustration. (laughs) That's the best I can do to try to help us understand what the Lord is saying. Seek my face. It's woven all throughout scripture where God's inviting us to do this. Psalm 27, verse 8. David says, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. First Chronicles 16, 11, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. We are, this is something we are always to be doing. That's why I said at the beginning, you know, If all we ever do in church is come in and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the house of the Lord, we've done something very significant. (laughs) Man, this hit me fresh this week. 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and will heal their Land. Now, the last three years or so, we've been hearing that scripture a whole lot because this is a prescription to heal your land. The literal, like, territory that you live in, the nation you live in, this is God's prescription. And I don't know about you, but I've heard a whole lot of sermons and I've heard a whole lot of teaching at prayer meetings and exhortation at prayer meetings where we're trying to live this out. I've heard a whole lot about humbling ourselves. I've heard a whole lot about prayer. I've heard a whole lot about turning from wicked ways. I hear very, very, very little about seeking the face of God. So what does it mean to seek his face? That's a very, very important question. After all, God's spirit, he he is spirit. And so technically, maybe he doesn't have a physical face. So is God inviting us to do something that's impossible? Now, God can manifest in physical form if he wants to. In fact, he did, and his name is Jesus, right? But in Exodus 33, God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live, like the physical, glorious, manifest form of God's glory in all its fullness. Something about our physicality cannot handle God's glory. So is God inviting us to do something that's impossible? I don't think he is. I think it's an invitation to intimate friendship. And it's funny, especially over the last few months, in just random different sermons, I feel like we've talked about friendship with God quite a bit. And I've come to realize that's because that's a theme in our church. That's at the core of what we desire. And if we're going to be a church of face seekers, that's really what we're talking about. We want to disciple people in loving God 
for who he is and being friends, friends of God. You know, not everyone is God's friend. And God, not every Christian is God's friend. I know we write songs about it, sing songs about it. I am a friend of God. Remember that one? That was a good one. Israel Houghton. We sang that a few churches ago. My wife wife was like, no, I didn't like that one. It's nice to think that you would be God's friend. But not everyone is God's friend. And God gave me a revelation on that as I was studying these things this spring. And he showed me there's three levels of relationship with him. There's children, there's servants, and there's friends. And it's progressive maturity based on choices you and I make. And so salvation is a free gift. When you get saved, you're a child of God. You get adopted into his family. How many of you would say you're best friends with your kids when they're little kids? Now, you might, before you answer, go, oh, I am. I just love my kids. Yeah, you know all about them. You love them. But can they comprehend who you are? Can they comprehend what it's like when you leave them and go off to work? Can they comprehend what it's like when you go out and you face some battles and some struggles with things they, you don't even want them to know is in the world? No. And so you're just like, okay, let's just keep this father and son, and I love you so much. And you think you're, we're like best friends, but in reality, a child relationship is all about receiving. And so a child can live in the house of God and does live in the house of God, but the whole relationship is one of receiving, right? When your kids are little, you don't have that much expectation that they're going to like get involved and do a lot. How many of you like, I need to teach them chores. And so I'm going to make you load the dishwasher, but I don't have to reload it after you load it when they're little. I mean, if you're a smart parent, you're like, I'm going to start at four and five, but I'm going to have to redo it. Right. We were, we were painting one of the last houses we lived in and my kids are like, I want to help. And I'm like, uh, no, thanks. Daddy doesn't need help tonight. Right. Because I'm going to have to redo everything you do. Right. It's really not help. You just receive You receive my protection. You receive my provision. You're my child. Now, when a kid grows up and develops maturity, they reach a point where, let's say you have a family business, a family farm. And now they're going to come into the family business. And now they're old enough to start being a servant or a co-worker, a co-laborer with you. And that's a different level. And when they get out there and they get in those fields with you and they start shoveling the manure and they start learning the hard jobs they go oh my goodness my dad has been doing this for how many years and they start to learn things about dad that they didn't know before and so when we start to serve God when we graduate from just being consumers and receivers called children in the kingdom when we start to serve God Oh, we start to see a whole different side of God that we didn't know existed. You know, it says in the miracle, Jesus' first miracle, when he turned water into wine, it says everybody at the banquet, they, did, they, were just, they were just glad more wine came out, right? Oh, and you've saved the best to last. They didn't know what had happened. But it says the servants knew that there was water and now there's wine. And you can ask the people who serve in this church, especially those on our ministry team who stand here week after week. People come up week after week. I need healing. We pray. We hear later. Boom. God healed. Wow. We see water turn into wine every single week. And we're just like, 
And we feel, it's like you feel crazy sometimes. Like, hey, hey, everybody, you get on social, we just had somebody else healed. And it's just like, like, who cares? It's like, do you understand? Water into wine is a miracle. Oh, my goodness. I was right there. I saw it. And so it's a privilege and an honor to be called up into service of God, which God in his goodness calls all of his children to be servants at some point because he's a good dad who trains up his kids in responsibility and being co-laborers. But there's a third level and that right there is friendship with God. Friendship with God. That's the most holy place. And here's the deal. The invitation is open to everyone for that friendship. God is, I'm, I'm limited in capacity of how many friends I can have. I just literally do not have enough time or energy resources for every person on the planet. But God does. He can have a personal relationship. He can be everywhere at once. He can be with everyone at once and treating you like they're the only person on earth because he's limitless because he's God. So that invitation is open to everybody. At the end of the three years of ministry with his disciples, Jesus said, and John, at the end of those three years, right before the cross, I no longer call you servants. Now I call you friends. Because I've made known to you all that the Father's revealed to me. Servants don't know the business. They don't know all the details. Children definitely don't know the business and all the details. But friends... How many of you have ever been a friend of someone in a leadership position, right? And I, either at a church or in a business, and you get one-on-one with them, and then they start telling you, like, what's really going on, right? Like, you see the public uh, interactions, but, man, in the details, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's these stresses, there's these things. And if they're telling you that stuff, that means they're trusting you as a friend. They're confiding in you. And the scriptures say the Lord confides in those who fear him. The Lord reveals his secrets. You know how we say to one another all the time, you know, God doesn't reveal the whole plan. He just reveals one step at a time. And, and how many of you have experienced that, right? We all have at some point. And then you, you've probably experienced this too. I know I have. You get down the road of God's plan, and you're thinking, man, it's a good thing he didn't tell me the whole plan, because if I knew what all was going to be involved, I would not have done it. That would have been like, no way am I doing that. That is way harder than I thought I was signing up for. But by that point, you're grateful, and you see the purpose, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm in it. You know, it's too late now. Anyway, okay, all right, so it's, you know what I'm saying? It's like, Peter, let's be honest in church. I put all my eggs in your basket, and your basket is hard sometimes. (laughs) But where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You're God. Can't walk away from you. You do have a choice, but there's only one good choice. I'll preach it like it is. I've preached that before. You do have a choice. There's only one good choice. But I do believe when you reach maturity, there are times, not all the time, when God tells you the whole plan. 
He just says, here's what I want. And you're going to go through this, this, and this. It's going to be excruciating. But this is what I want. And I want you to do it. All right? And he can tell you that at that point in your maturity, because when you were younger in your maturity, and I'm not talking age, I'm talking in proximity of the Lord, knowing him, knowing his heart. When you were younger and you didn't know him as well, he would have scared you too much with that information. But you get to a certain place of knowing his heart, and he tells you the full daggone plan, and you go, wow, it's going to cost my life. Okay. You're worth it. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it, Dad. I'm in. Jesus knew. He told him, how many times? Three, five times? Well, and then they're going to kill me, and then three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. He knew the whole plan. Now listen, knowing the whole plan does not make it less painful when you're actually going through it. And that's why when he got to Gethsemane, he's sweating blood. He's agonizing. He's letting his friends know, you've disappointed me. Did you know Jesus did that? You can't keep watch for one hour? <sighs> He's hurting. Judas comes up. He goes, you betrayed me with a kiss? He's, he's, that ripped his heart out. He knew it was all going to happen. Because the father trusted him that much. God told Moses a whole lot in advance. You ever read through some of the blessings and curses? He's like, no, if you do this, I'm going to bless you, bless you, bless you. If you do this, I'm going to curse you, curse you, curse you. Now, Moses, listen, they're not going to do it. I'm going to have to curse them, curse them, curse them, all right? <laughs> he just flat out tells them. He tells Moses, by the way, you're not going in the promised land. Okay, please. Nope, stop asking <laughs> All right. Why? Because Moses was a friend of God. Moses trusted God's heart fully. And he wasn't going to give up when things got hard. He was going to trust God was good when life was not. So he could be trusted with more of God's heart. He could be trusted with knowing more of God. Now that's a sacred trust. God's looking for lovers. He's looking for people he can trust. And here's what I'm telling you tonight. There are degrees of presence. So, so David says, the psalmist says, who can ascend the hill of God and not just stay in the outer court, which is where all the worshipers were allowed to go, by the way. All the children. See, there's a correlation. The outer court. Not just the inner holy place, which is where the priests would go to do their work. That's the servant but the most holy place, face to face, like Moses used to do. He made a tent of meeting. And it says that in Exodus 33, God would speak face to face with Moses as one speaks to a friend. What's that mean? See, God's a spirit. He said, if you see my physical form, you'll die. And so it wasn't that he saw the literal face of God. It's that he was in God's manifest presence. He did hear the audible voice of God, and God did not hold back. God didn't use enigma. 
He's, when when uh, Aaron and Miriam rebelled against Moses, he goes, why were you not afraid to speak against Moses? You know, I, God was saying, I do use you guys. You guys are special. Um, but I speak to prophets in dreams and visions. So Aaron, and, he was rebuking them. Aaron and Miriam, yeah, I use you. Yes, you're leaders. I speak to you in dreams and visions. I speak to Moses face to face. He hears my voice. God's like, I, I let my hair down around Moses. I don't act all prim and proper. It's like when he carved out the Ten Commandments, and he, God's like, you better get down there. God's telling him, I'm, I'm frustrated. God shared his true feelings with Moses. Because Moses could be trusted. God would speak face to face. God is the leader of the entire world. And around Moses, he would tell him the details. And so David, I believe, had insight into this. I believe he wrote Psalm 24. And I, David was not the high priest. He wasn't allowed in the holy place, and yet he's asking that question. Clean hands, pure heart, those who seek the face of God. Because David didn't enter into the holy place, and yet pre-Jesus, he experienced the manifest presence of God. He knew what that was like. Mm-hmm. So he talks about these degrees. Who can just, who can not only come up the hill, but who can go all the way in. There's degrees of presence. So think about it this way. Actually, let me read this scripture first, and I'll give you this illustration. He, David did write Psalm 27, and he said this, One thing I ask from the Lord, one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and here's why, to gaze on or upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He said, I'm asking one thing, to dwell in your house, but not just to dwell in your house, to dwell in your house in such a way that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And he goes on in Psalm 27, he says, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. There's benefits to living in the house of God as his child. You get his protection. You get his provision. He says, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. He's saying, I want to dwell in your house. I want to gaze upon your beauty. Because when the day of trouble comes, I'm going to be protected. There's benefits to living in the house of God. But then he said his heart, Holy Spirit's whispering to David's heart, don't just seek his house. Don't just seek to be in the house of God. Seek his face. There's an inner room. It's God's bedroom. It's where he is. It's where his presence is. Go further up. Go further in. Do not be satisfied with being an outer court Christian. 
there's degrees of presence. Okay, so think about it this way. The degrees of presence and how you judge them depend on your proximity to someone. Okay, so let's say I want to give you, uh, one of my friends and his wife, a gift. And I want to go to their house and give it to them. So I want them both to be there. So I call my friend, my buddy. And I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? Hey, I'm playing video games. Awesome. Cool. Hey, I want to give you guys that gift I've been talking about. Is your wife there with you? Yeah, she's right here. Cool. Awesome. Both there. I'll be right over, and I'm going to give you the gift. Okay, cool. So I drive over, and I get there, and I go in. And he's sitting there with his little goofy nerd headset on, playing online video games. And I'm like, hey, man, what's up? I'm like, Where, where's your wife? I thought you said she was right here with you. Oh, she is. She's up in the bedroom. Oh, well, can you call her to come down? See, because when I was at my house and I said, where's your wife? Is she there? I'm far away. And so he's like, yeah, she's here with me. We're in the same house. But when I draw nearer, nearer than his wife is, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like she's there with him anymore. I'm like, where is she? Oh, she's here. She's just in the bedroom. Okay, can you call her? Why? So we can come down. So she can come down. We can all be in each other's presence in the same room so that when I give the gift, I can see your reaction. I can see her face. I can see your face. There's degrees of presence. When I shared this with our worship team, the Lord gave me an illustration to do with them. And earlier that day, the presence of the Lord was so heavy on me. It was just one of the heaviest times of my life. Just the revelation, but I, his presence was on me all day. I was weeping all day. We had a little meeting in our family groups room back there. The worship team's coming in. I'm like, hey, guys. I can't see we're coming in because the presence of God was still on me. I was just whoo, overwhelmed. I'm like, welcome. Sit down. It's the Lord. Sorry, I'm okay. All right. It was like that the whole day. It was just really beautiful. But it, earlier in the day, the Lord gave me a prophetic word, an encouraging prophetic word for every one of them. And I wrote them down. We, we had about, at that time, 12, 13 people on the worship team. And I wrote down a, a encouraging, specific prophetic word for each person, totally from the Holy Spirit. Some of them I didn't even know. I don't know what this means, but I'm giving it to you. And it was encouraging. And I said, guys, here's an example. There's degrees of presence. We're sitting in the same room together. And this room, that room's like the size of your living room probably. And so there's 12, 13 of us. I mean, was, we were in a pretty good, tight little space in there. And I said, you know, I could have called you up on the phone and gave you this encouraging word. And you'd be like, well, oh, cool. Now, if I give it to you tonight, sitting in the same room closer, kind of face to face, that's going to have a little more impact, isn't it? Yeah. I said, but the Lord told me to do this in a really specific way. I said, I feel like the Lord wanted me to get up and come and kneel down, because they were all sitting down on couches and chairs, kneel down in front of you and get eye to eye about the same amount of space that you would when you're talking to someone in a personal conversation. And then eye to eye, staring them in the eyes, I'm going to tell you this very specific encouraging word. And all the introverts were like, oh, my goodness, my anxiety. It was awkward. Some of you, if you try this with your kids tonight, you're going to feel awkwardness. 
because we Americans aren't very good with intimacy. Did you know studies have been done in America after about five, six years old, we stopped touching our kids in an affectionate way? Latin cultures, other cultures, they, they are touchy. They are, they are full on kissing their kids on the face, on the lips, full into adulthood. Ah, but in America, ah, five, six years, ah, it's just kind of, well, we just kind of shut down. And we rob our kids of blessings and things that they need to tell them who they are, to help them see the Father's smile. When we get down face to face and we smile and they can see our pride and our joy over them. And so I knelt down and each person, I'd give them this word. And I mean, I, I was all in. And we would sit there and cry. And then I would get up and scooch over Kofi and I'd get next person. And we'd sit there and cry. And then I'd get, I think everybody was crying by the end, including me, many times over. And then I sat back down and I said, there's degrees of presence. Now that's a little bit different, isn't it? I could have sat here from me to the front row tonight, and that's pretty close. And I could have told everybody they're wearing the middle. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. But when I got face to face, when I got up close and personal, it's going deep calls to deep, spirits touching spirit, and there is nothing in the way. And the Lord's like, that's what I want. My buddy, in my example, I call him up. Are you there with your eye? Yeah, she's right here. But he's not in the bedroom with her. He's not gazing upon her beauty. (laughs) He could have just seen her that morning. He might know what mood she's kind of in for the day. But maybe something changed. He doesn't know if she's presently smiling. He doesn't know if she's presently crying. Maybe she found a text, just got a text message in the bedroom. Now she's up there weeping. He has no idea. Because they're in the same house, but they're not in the same room. We have a, here's what we have in America right now, church. We have a generation of Christians who are content to be in the same house with God, but not seek his face. And so we have whole churches that they're saved, they're going to heaven. They're in God's house. They have his protection, his provision. But because they don't know how to seek his face, they don't know how to draw into his room and get up close and personal, they don't realize when he is not in the room with them. And I told our worship team, we're, we want to be a holy of holies church. We want to be a church of face seekers. And so as worship leaders, and we consider everyone who's on the stage to be a worship leader, We need to not only be lead worshipers, we need to be lead face seekers. And so we we need to be seeking his face every single day. I don't want to be going off of a word God gave me last week. And if he gave me a word last week, I want to check today. Is that still the word for today? I believe it was Bill Johnson that said many people have killed Isaacs because they heard what God said, but they didn't hear what God is saying. He wants a daily relationship. 
And sometimes he's like, do this. And you get a few months or a few weeks down, he's like, all right, good. You did what I asked. Now change it and do this. And there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of Christians, a whole lot of leaders, a whole lot of churches. They miss it. We set up our systems. We blaze right along. And we're doing the same thing for years and years and years because this is how we think we should do things. And this is how we do it in America. And we're not listening to what the Father's saying because we're not seeking his face. We can no longer be content living in the same house with God, but to not be in the same room. And so the question then remains, who may ascend the hill? Who may stand in the most holy place? Clean hands, pure heart. Prayer meeting this week, I was sitting right there, and I just read that that morning. I was writing this sermon. It's fresh on my mind. I sit down, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me. Somebody else was leading the prayer meeting that day, and they're getting started. And the Holy Spirit says to me, purity of heart does not have to do with cleanliness from sin. And I was like, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> sure it does. And that's all he said. It was like this invitation. Find out what that means. So I open Psalm 24. I start reading. I'm like thinking about it. Prayer meetings going on. People are praying. And I realize right away, cleanliness of hands, that's speaking to the, the sin. Keep your hands clean. Don't engage in sin. I'm like, oh. So he's like, that's something different. Purity of heart. So I Google up. I Google up. I look up. I look up and I Google. I look down and I Google. I Google up. <laughs> I don't ask. It's good. I Googled it. Looked it up on Google. Here we go. You know, define purity. And I actually went to Psalm 24. Oh, yeah, it wasn't Google. It was Blue Letter Bible. I went to Psalm 24. And I found the exact word that in the Hebrew for, the, for purity there. And I looked at that. And it means pure or sincere, sincerity. And when I read that, it was like, there's the revelation the Holy Spirit gave. So the, God wants clean hands. You, gotta, you need to stay out of sin if you want to have a close friendship with the Lord. But there's a whole lot of, again, Christians in America, outer court Christians, who they know how to keep their hands clean. They know how to stay out of sin. And church is something they do once a week, and they go to church every week. Might even serve. But when I'm done serving at church, I'm done serving the Lord, period, for the week. And when I go out those doors, it, I'm, the Lord has blessed me. He's good. He's answered my prayers. I have a good job. And I'm going to go live my life, and I'm going to build my kingdom on the earth. And that right there gets into this. So God says, I don't just want clean hands. I don't just want good people. I want 
purity of heart. I want sincerity, but I want the purity of motive, of, of motive and intent. God says he judges not just our actions, our motives and intents of the heart. You want to know what obedience is? You want to know what discipleship is? You want to know what good leadership is? Seek the face of God. When he speaks, do what he says. And you do that every single day. And that's it. We never graduate from that. Seek his face. Enjoy him for him. And when he speaks to you and wants you to do something, because he will, if you're a face seeker, those are the people he wants to use because you make him look good. Because those who look to him are radiant, and you're, when you look up, gaze upon his beauty, like Moses' face would literally radiate and glow. <laughs> Thank God it's all like spiritual now. But <laughs> your face would glow. You would radiate the glory of God when you're a face seeker, and then you go out from your tent of meeting with him, and guess what? You are radiating a true image of Christ to the world around you. And so when he speaks, you just do what he says. And that's everything. And sometimes he'll tell you to do things that make no sense to you. They'll make no sense to your family. It'll make no sense to your church. People will misjudge you. But the fact is they weren't in your tent of meeting. Why did Saul get it torn away from him, the kingdom? Because he did the appearance of what looked like the will of God, but he held back some stuff. He didn't fully carry it out. And there will be times when God tells you to do things and you fully carry it out. And people who are other well-meaning Christians will be offended by what you're doing. But oftentimes it's because they were in the outer court assuming what God might want while you were in the inner court hearing his exact direction to you. And so when you stand before God on judgment day because he judges motives. Here's how I live my life. What did God tell me to do? Have I done it? What does his word say? Obviously do all that. But I mean rhema, his fresh word for me. How do I personally live this out? And when he tells me, I do it. And I don't care if I offend. I don't care if I offend all (laughs) y'all. I don't care if I'm the only one left in my life. Doing his will. He'll ask me on judgment day, why'd you do that? I thought that was you. And if, if I misheard the voice of God, if, if it was a deceiving spirit, or if it was, I just don't have good spiritual ears, then that's on me. That's fine. But I better seek him. I better really do the Gideon thing and really seek him. <laughs> Especially the, more, the bigger a decision, we better fleece him. We better <laughs> be asking him and making, asking his confirmations. But at the end of the day, in Judgment Day, I tried to my best to do every day what I thought you wanted me to do that day. And I can live with that. Because the results are up to you. I'm a seed planter and a waterer. You cause it to make it grow, and you decide how much fruit there's going to be. So that's my job. 
Exodus 33 is a really special chapter because God tells Moses, go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses makes two profound statements in that chapter. Number one is in verse 15. He says, if you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. Basically what he's saying is, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. Second thing he says, God, God, God responds to that. God liked that, by the way. God liked that. God was upset. God was vexed with them. God was confounded and frustrated. He's like, y'all go. <laughs> You're stiff-necked. I might, I might kill you on the way. I'm going to get so upset. So you just go without me. He was pouring out his word to them. The word of God for the first time in history being revealed. Ten commandments. The law. He's creating a nation. Do you know how special this is? And they're like, we don't have fish like we had in Egypt. We don't have the onions and the leeks and the, gar- and the garlic. All we have is this, what is it, bread? Manna. We don't even have meat. Because they weren't focused on the God of the universe is speaking to us. They were focused on, what do we have to eat tonight? Not very good. And God's like, you got to be kidding me. I am offering you myself. For the first time in history, a whole nation of people to be covenanted with God. And you're, you want to know what's for dinner. And you're upset because it's not fish like you had in Egypt. Okay. If you just want my hand, y'all go ahead. There's the promise land. You can have it. It'll, you'll get in. I'll drive out the enemies. Go ahead. You can have it. And Moses was a face seeker. And Moses is like, I don't want it if you're not there. So if you're not going, I'm not going. Don't send us up from here. And then he, he's like, you've been telling me lead these people. These are your people. <laughs> uh-uh. I'm not doing this. And God liked that. God's like, I don't like that. And so he goes, my presence will go with you. I'll go with you. And Moses is like, good. Okay, we got that settled. <laughs> Verse 18, now, now, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Would you show me your glory? It occurred to me this week, he wasn't talking about a miracle. When we see miracles, we, we say to each other, we saw the glory of God. And it, those bring God glory, but it's not his, his full manifest glory. Who he is. And think about when Moses said this. He had been called, chosen. He had seen a burning bush, heard, heard the audible voice. Did you realize he got spiritual gifts and spiritual power anointing in that interaction? What kind of spiritual gifts? How about that stick you have is no longer just a stick. It's your magic stick. And when you throw it down, it'll turn into a snake. And when you pick it back up, it'll turn back into a stick. And if they still don't believe you, put your hand in your jacket, pull it out. It'll be leprous. Put it back in. Pull it back out. It'll be clean. And if they still don't believe you, I'm giving you power and authority to turn the Nile into blood. Now go. All that's just so they'll believe you that I sent you. Power, spiritual gifts, that's pretty cool. He goes, 
He sees the 10 plagues happen. He brings them out successfully. Red Sea parted. He sees the whole enemy, all the enemies get drowned in the Red Sea. He sees the manna from heaven. He sees water coming from a rock. He sees a fire cloud. And you have, it'll blow your mind when you realize that fire cloud never left for 40 years. Standing tornado that glowed at night. Saw all that. Quail for dinner up to their knees until they hated it. He saw all that. He saw when people complained and rebelled, his sister, God's like, leprosy. <laughs> Whoa. And, and he's like, that's a bit much, God. Seven days. She deserves it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he saw all that. He saw these other really rebellious guys, and it's like, the Lord's like, hey, Moses, tell him this. Whoever's for me, come to me. Whoever's with them, go to them. Now, if, if they're in the wrong and I'm in the right, the earth's going to open up just like that original Superman movie. Any of you see that when you were a child like me and it terrified you when the earthquake came and the car fell in and Lois is dying and you think to yourself, I hope there's never an earthquake around here because my parents let me watch it as like a five-year-old. It's like that. Boom, gone. Earth's back over him. He saw all that. And he gets to Exodus 33 and goes, mm-mm. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not done yet. 40 days, 40 nights on the mountain. No water. Not just no food, no water. That's physically, naturally impossible to survive that. He, it's like he didn't even care because he's in God's presence. He sees the finger of God inscribe supernaturally, if we could say magically in our culture, <laughs> inscribe on stone tablets the original Ten Commandments. He sees all this, all that. And in Exodus 33, he goes, now, show me your glory. I want the fullness of who you are. And God's like, you can't handle who I am. You'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft in the rock, in a little cave. I'll put my hand over you, and I'll pass by. You can see my backside. That's about all you can handle. But after all that, here's the point. After all that, miracle signs and wonders, the things that are so absent in our culture that, that we make our mantras, we're going to see miracles. This is a house of miracles, miracle signs and wonders. And I remember probably around 2016, 17, we hadn't seen too many in this church. And I remember being like, we, if we're not experiencing that, something's not right. Keep pressing in, keep asking, keep believing, keep having faith, keep praying, keep learning, keep growing. Why, they drove it out, we can't drive it out. Why can't we drive that one out, Jesus? Teach us, learn, more, grow, go, go, go. And then guess what? Miracles, signs, and wonders start happening in this church. It's like, that is awesome. It's awesome. I rejoice. Happens all the time now. It's awesome. I remember somebody asking, I think it was Rena Clark, how do you know when you've created a culture in your church where you know, all the gifts of the Spirit are fully accepted and all this? And he goes, Hmm. It was him or Bill Johnson, and I was there in person with this. And I was like, hmm. When it, when you don't think it's weird anymore, <laughs> when it's like average Sunday, you go up, you're like, oh Lord, bless them, fill them with your spirit. Ah, pa 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 pa. Tongues for the first time. It's like, oh okay. It's like you know, healing. Okay. Oh, you're healed. Oh, that's awesome. And when it first starts happening, everyone, you're like, what? You spoke in tongues? What? You got healed? This is amazing. The kingdom has come. 
thought that was a demon, but it left. Praise God, right? Whew, it's amazing. And then you get to the place where it's like, it's happening every week. Now, we never want to take it for granted. Ever. But when you once thought that was the goal, and then it's happening all the time, you realize that's not the goal. Now, it's a necessary stage to get to, especially in an American culture. That needs rebuilt back into the church because the main power and gifts he's given us have atrophied. And we're trying to carry the presence on carts the way we want to do it. And we wonder why it's not working. Because we were, carry, we were made to carry this presence. We were made to carry the weight of his glory. But man, I don't know. What if God went crazy and just saved everybody in the world tonight and poured out all the spiritual gifts and we saw all the miracles? Then what? We'd be left going, oh, that wasn't the point. Show me your glory. I want to know who you are now. I want to know who you are now. I once heard a, recently heard a testimony of a very well-known, respected, famous Christian man of God who's very anointed, very powerful spiritual gifts, very famous. And he was warning a younger generation. And he said, don't do what I did. He said, God removed his anointing from me because he found he couldn't trust me anymore. Because it became all about the results. And it became all about success, seeing things happen, starting new works for God. It became all about the stuff. But he said, now I'm in a really special place where all that's gone. And I'm just back to me and the Lord. And he was blessed by that. And that's what it's all about in the first place. And so tonight, I just want to close with some special time for us to set aside. To just seek his face together. I'm going to ask the band to come. And while they're coming... I want to finish this story for you. Remember this lady, Emma, that I showed you her picture at the beginning? She found out that male model's name was Adam Gazelle. And she was devastated by what had happened, how she had been deceived. She found his contact info. She got his email. She emailed him and said, I just want you to know there's someone nefariously using your image to deceive people, and I was a victim, and this is what happened, and I was pretty devastated. And I just want you to know that's happening, so you might think about if, you, if there's anything you can do. And to her surprise, he reached back out, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry that happened, and they start talking. Well, they start conversing over a period of several months. <laughs> you can probably know where this is going. <laughs> they end up meeting in person. They end up falling in love, and this is them presently over the last few years. She ended up with the guy that she thought she was talking to, but she really wasn't. She was devastated. But she found love and redemption 
and healing because she chose to seek his face. There's some of you here tonight that maybe some people in our culture have misrepresented who God is. And they've taken a Bible and they've said, this is what it says. But really what they were saying to you or what they were representing to you was a misrepresentation. It was a distorted image of who he really is. And maybe some of you here tonight have been hurt by that. There's some people who do that nefariously to deceive people. There's a whole lot of other people that they're not doing it nefariously. They, they have just been given a misrepresentation of who God is. And they're just projecting that. You guys can come on. And if that's you here tonight, if you've been hurt by the church, hurt by spiritual leaders, here's my advice to you. Don't hold it against Jesus. Do not mistrust God because, or be angry with God because of how some people have misrepresented him. And here's my advice. Seek his face. Seek his true face. And say to him, I want to know who you really are. If you're fed up with religious systems, if you're fed up with this church says it that way and this church says this and it seems like polar opposites and this religion says this and the Bible says this and will you show me who you really are? And if you will sincerely ask him that, he will reveal himself to you. Many times through the pages of scripture. And you'll go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was in there. The Bible says a whole lot of things you didn't think it says, and it, says, it doesn't say a whole lot of things that you thought it said. And so you need to start with the word of God. Seek him for who he is. But ask him, show me, show me your face in this book. Show me your face, God. Let's seek him for who he is tonight. And that's what I invite, want to invite you to do. We're not going to have a ministry team available right now we will after this worship time but I think a whole lot of people maybe people that get prayer again and again for things over and over those things would be fully resolved if you would learn to seek him for who he is if you need clean hands and a pure heart tonight this would be my advice don't seek to clean your own hands and to purify your own heart Seek his face. When am I tempted to look at pornography? Is it when I'm in the same room with my wife, sitting across the dinner table from her on a date, seeking her face? I want to know you more. Is that when I'm tempted by that stuff? Oh, no, absolutely not. But it could be when we're in the same house, we're just not in the same room, and we're doing our own thing. If you will seek God's face, that will purify your heart. And that pure heart will keep your hands pretty, pretty clean. So seek his face. Seek his face. And as you do that tonight, during this time, I just want to take a few minutes of worship as an opportunity for you to seek him for who he is for yourself tonight. And say, reveal yourself to me, God. I want to know you for who you are. If there's anything between me and you, show me what it is. If there's anything keeping me from you, show me what it is. I don't want to just be a child. I don't want to just be a servant. I want to know you.